watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes, it's me. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Clap for the February miracle. How would we know that you wanted the February miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. We have a really uh, fantastic guest tonight uh, talking about, unfortunately, a very painful but also oddly fascinating subject of, of child separation uh, and family separation and, and, and what we can do to stop it and, and keep families intact. I think it's a really cool conversation, and I appreciate you for joining us uh, tonight. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook on Float. Float.app slash Muddied Waters Media. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on Anchor, on Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Twitch, apparently. We're on Twitch. We're on all the podcasting platforms. Check us out everywhere that we possibly can. And however you're consuming this, whether you're watching it, listening to it, and wherever you're doing that, be sure to share it right now. Share this right now. Like it. Follow us. Five star us. However, you can demonstrate approval and subscription to the, us on whatever platform that you're on. Be sure to do that. And if you're if you're on YouTube, be sure not just to press subscribe, but hit the bell too. You got to hit the bell, or else your phone's not going to blow up every time we put something on, especially when we're live. We want it to blow. We want to blow your phone up. Let us blow your phone up. Be sure to share this right now. The last thing that I want 
is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Be sure to share this right now. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle-related caucus in not just the Libertarian Party, but in any organization anywhere on earth ever. Because who else would do who, no one would do this. Uh, go to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus to become a member to debate today. And if you want to become an official member, you got to get a button. You got to buy a button. Libertarians love buttons like buttons love libertarians. Go to muddiedwatersmedia.com, click on the old store link there, the store button, and then go and buy our buttons. Uh, they're five bucks each, and that will make you a member, which is worth It's priceless. You can't. Well, I, I guess you can put a price on it. It's five dollars, but be sure to join that today. I'd also our next our, our episode is also brought to you by Nug of Knowledge, a smokable CBD products. Yes, that's what we're doing now. Nug of Knowledge. Now, Nug of Knowledge is not your everyday CBD supplier. Uh, a portion of their profits go to help end the destructive war on drugs. Uh, they also have a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products to veterans and people with disabilities uh, who cannot afford these types of natural remedies. Uh, many who use Nug of Knowledge say that it helps with joint pain, stress relief, or a much-needed pick-me-up. Uh, and if uh, you want to smoke your CBD, go to nugofknowledge.com and use the checkout code SPIKE, S-P-I-K-E, that's my name, Use checkout code SPIKE to get 10% off your Nug of Knowledge buds. You're that. You get 10% off of anything you get from Nug of Knowledge. I don't, I don't know why I'm having a hard time closing on that one. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you live or are existing anywhere near the Tampa Bay area of Florida, and you further find yourself to have been personally injured in some way, I have some fantastic news for you. Well, first of all, I'm very sorry that that's happened to you, and I hope that you're able to heal from that personal injury. But I've also got additional good news for you. If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, Chris Reynolds, personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, will be able to get you just so much money. I can't promise any of this. And it's I, uh, possibly illegal for me to say that. It doesn't hurt him, I'm told. But maybe me. I can't. I have no idea how much money he's going to get you. But he'll try his best. I know that. He'll try, he will try his absolute best to get you. Go to chrisreynoldslaw.com. He's a much better attorney than I am a spokesperson for him. And uh, be sure to check him out. Thank you so much, Chris Reynolds. The intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on his Facebook. Uh, go to his SoundCloud and go to his Bandcamp, joedavimusic.bandcamp.com, where you can buy his entire discography, buy everything he's ever made. It's like 25 bucks. He's an incredibly talented musician. Thank you so much, Joe. Davi, and I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious purified drinking water, ultra pure drinking water that is both oxygenated with ozone, it is BPA free, it's non-carbonated, why isn't that coming into 
focus there. It's kosher certified, and it's also made in the USA. I These are all characteristics that I also share, although I don't know if I'm oxygenated with ozone, but I am BPA-free. I am non-carbonated. I'm, I don't know if I've been certified as kosher, but I am kosher-ish, and I also am made in the USA. So in a way, I mean, I already am 70% this or 60%, whatever percent water we are. I am that percent of this because this is the water I drink. Uh, but also, I am this as well. going to think that out a little bit more later. Bulavanaka. Oh, that's delicious. You're going to see me chugging this water. This water is so good. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him, as always. Folks, my guest tonight is an author, historian, and professor. She is the chair of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program at the University of Massachusetts, Massachusetts Amherst. Like, I can't even say it right. Uh, her newest book uh, is, uh, and my dad's going to be upset at me because he's from Massachusetts. Most of my family is actually from Massachusetts. Her newest book uh, is Taking Children, A History of American Terror, which talks about the long and sordid history of institutionalized child kidnapping in America. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show my next guest, Professor Laura Briggs. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This is a very interesting subject to me. Um, it is heartbreaking what is happening and what has happened uh, as it relates to uh, just the, the the disregard for the uh, for for the the sanctity of the family that is shown so often by government. And I really appreciate an opportunity to talk with an expert about this subject. Well, I'm um ha- I can't say I'm happy to talk about it. I wish that it were not the case, and yeah. I wish that people were not continuing to experience the loss of children um, for reasons having to do with racialized terror. But nevertheless, I'm anxious to talk about it. Well, I, I, I join you in that. And folks, be sure to comment with your uh, thoughts and questions. Muddied admins are standing by to tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Laura, uh, I, I always ask, whenever I have a guest on uh, that I've not talked to before, I always ask, what is it that got you interested initially in this subject of you know, child uh, taking children and and family separation? Was it a a moment uh, that happened that that struck you or did it just sort of your your overall studies bring you to it? What what brought you to this subject? Well, I've been writing and thinking about reproductive politics for about 20 years. And in um, 2017, 2018, when we started hearing about... um, the child separation of those who were applying for asylum um, at the border and separating children from kin and caregivers. I was devastated and not at all shocked. The, um, I wrote a book that came out in 2012 called Somebody's Children, and the very last um, chapter in that book, I'm saying, you know, the next thing that we're going to look at is going to be the separation of children from migrants and people crossing the U.S. border. And 
I couldn't, you know, I wrote that thinking, well, if I write it down, that'll stop it, right? And of course, it's a naive <laughs> hope. Nobody yeah. pays that much attention to historians. But um, it was shocking and devastating. Yeah, it is absolutely devastating. And the thing is, no, your your writing it isn't necessarily the one thing that's going to cause it all to end. But if we don't talk about it and if we don't make people aware of it, then the likelihood of it happening is even is even less of it ever ending. So it's it's good that you're doing this. Now, you mentioned the uh the immigration, the separations that are happening at the border, people coming here to to seek a better life and and you know, one of their their first initial instances of being there is to have a government uh, separate their families, put their children in cages, uh, uh, often to have difficulty reuniting with their families. We we just heard that there are families reuniting that have been separated since 2018. Um, I, I can't even imagine being separated from my family by government having not even committed a crime. But this air, these uh, family separations, which unfortunately are not you know unique to the Trump era. But this is really just the most recent example of government tearing children from their families with with zero regard for the for the integrity of that family. Can you can you tell us? Uh, I mean, obviously not the entire history, but can you tell us where this started in in this country? So one of the most striking things as people were beginning to talk about what was happening at the border was the real difference between people on Twitter like Hillary Clinton and Democratic politicians who are like, oh, this isn't America, and racial justice activists who are like, oh, my God, this is so much America. Um, This isn't the first time by any stretch of the imagination. So we first started hearing in this country about the separation of children from um, kin and caregivers in the 1830s and even before that in the 1790s in the context of enslavement. Um, It's separating children from their mothers in particular was one of the ways that slave owners enforced compliance, um, terror, helping people to understand clearly what their position was as children that they didn't even have um, the right to somebody who cared about them looking after them. And subsequently, it was a tactic used in the context of the Indian Wars as the United States stretched an empire across the U.S. continent, or the continent we now think of as the U.S. Right. And the... um, And as the... As the wars ran on through the from the 1830s all the way through the 1890s and didn't seem to end, the army got the idea that if you took the children, particularly of indigenous leadership, tribal nations leadership, and put them in faraway boarding schools, that you had a unique power of leverage over those tribal nations. Right, right. And you could pass on to the children um, English and you could integrate them into U.S. society rather than into their tribal communities. Um, That isn't exactly what happened, of course. Tribal nations continued and indigenous languages continued. But nevertheless, that was very much the dream of 
the army as it essentially went from holding people, holding indigenous children and adults together in prison camps to essentially um, creating prison camps that were called boarding schools. So, and go ahead. So, be, so basically the homogenization of American society, even if it means destroying entire lineages and, and families in the process. That was very much the vision, is if only you could assimilate indigenous people into indigenous children into sort of the dominant society, make them Christian, make them speak English, then they would lose um, what one report called the tribal and clannish organization that um, positioned them in um, hostile opposition to the um, Anglo society. Wow. And <clears throat> it's important to realize that that was not a light, uh, that was not ages ago. There are very much people still alive and walking among us who attended boarding schools um, or who were the who are the children of people who attended boarding schools. The boarding school experience is still a significant part of indigenous communities. But so too is what essentially turned into the next phase of child taking um, in the 20th century, the, the taking of kids in the middle of the 20th century from both black and indigenous communities is kind of a cure for poverty as and they would and the entry and of large numbers of kids into the US foster care system that actually really got its start in um, in the context of the civil rights movement and the fight over desegregation the important thing about desegregation that we always forget is actually that it was a children's crusade. School desegregation was about children. And the work of um, civil rights marches and so on was often carried forward by children. And the more um, white, white supremacists sought to discredit the black community that was, um, that was demanding an end to segregation, they focused on the children of single mothers. They focused on welfare and saying that everybody was a welfare cheat. And so they sought to take away their kids. And the size of the child welfare system doubled in the 1960s as, um, as children were taken from black families. And at the same time, we saw the taking of children from indigenous communities as the, as the effort, a renewed effort to end in conflict between indigenous communities and Anglo communities was to move people to cities so that they would be, um, so that they would be close to where the jobs were and distant from 
um, from reservations and native communities. And that's that, actually what that's actually what led to the creation of the American Indian Movement was the this policy uh, that was in earnest in the 40s and 50s to basically end reservation life and force the uh, force the natives into the into communities that they had never belonged to. It's ironically on land that was once theirs, but into these, you know, inner city communities to get jobs. But it really was just to destroy who they were. Now, a, a question about these. And these are two different policies that are both rooted in or at least appear to be rooted in kind of this white man's burden fallacy that, you know, the, the real problem with these these, you know, lesser cultures or less or races is that they just aren't approximate enough to whiteness and that the answer is to basically remove them from what they know. And, and But that I guess that's my next question. So if they are removing them, so for example, with the with the uh, the so-called Indian residential schools or the or the boarding schools, with the removing of uh, children from black families, uh, especially black single parent families, what was the end goal? Were, were they then put with white families? Were they just made to be fought, put through foster care like what what actually happened to these children that were being removed who were who was taking care of them right initially the goal was to place them with family members so it wasn't so much that they had that the white segregationists who were enacting these policies had a clear vision that they like with residential schools that they were going to um assimilate these African-American kids into white families. Right. On the contrary, they didn't think very much about what was going to happen to black kids. Their goal was to terrorize, um, to terrorize black communities. And so a lot of the discussion early on was, you know, all these welfare moms are just welfare cheats having these extra kids so that they don't, so that they can get a bigger check. Right. Right. Um, right. And I mean, we're, we're seriously talking about $30 checks. Um, and so they were, you can't support anybody on that, but the idea was that they would just relinquish their kids to, um, to family members, or they would move out of the community. So you see in the in Mississippi, it's a slightly different conversation, but the idea that single mothers who had illegitimate children, it was all about sort of illegitimacy was a key word in this conversation. Um, that if there was a Mississippi bill to sterilize mothers who had illegitimate children, black, and with the idea that it would be black mothers. Um, Mostly the, black mothers, right. The, no, actually, pretty much exclusively. The, the legislative oh, wow. debate was really clear, like that this was about black mothers. And they said, you know, when the cutting starts, this is a, almost a quote, um, when the cutting starts, the Negroes will head for Chicago. So if you could drive them north simply by terrorizing them, right, that's pretty much what the South had been doing for a generation with lynching, with um, the sort of blowing up of houses and churches and black businesses and the the dynamite campaigns of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was similar with taking children. If you could just scare a handful of people into believing that 
the consequences of rebelling against the white power structure and demanding an end to segregation was just not worth it. It was just going to bring fire down on people's heads. Then the belief was that they would stop, that this um, breaking of the social contract by demanding decent schools and decent housing um, would, by Black civil rights activists, would end. So it was basically the cruelty was the point. It was get them so scared that they'll just leave. In a similar way that some of the cruelty that has happened at the border, part of the point is to try to deter people from even coming here. In a similar fashion, it was to say, okay, just just get out. You know, if you don't want this to happen to you, go move somewhere else. We don't want, basically, we don't want your your kind here. So it sort of served two purposes. One was as agitprop against the civil rights movement towards, you know, talking to white people saying, well, you know, these people can't even take care of their families. That's why we're having to do this to take care of their children, but also to let those, those, you know, communities of color know, yeah, we, we don't want you here and we'll destroy your family until you, until you leave. This is, it's, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it's, it's, like you said, it's not surprising uh, when people, you know, uh, it, it is interesting to watch kind of, I guess, mainstream liberal culture say, this is not the America I know. And it's like, well, then you don't know much about America, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, this isn't about hating America, but let, let's be honest, like this is this is very much part and parcel of American policy. Actually, the times when it hasn't happened have been the departures from uh, American policy. Now, this actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but this happened, this started, uh, especially in communities of color, even before the founding of, of the United States, during the period when slaves were still being imported, and then even after that, uh, when slavery importation ended, uh, and there was the breeding of slaves, some of this happened as if, not even necessarily as a policy of cruelty, but just as a policy of treating people like livestock, where they would basically auction off or split up families because you know this because the mother was bought by this you know this owner and the children or the father was bought by this owner, you know, is that correct? That it was basically they were put on a chopping block the same way that like a litter of animals would be put? Right. One of the, um, one of the horrors of chattel slavery is that it turned people into objects and made children available to as property that could settle debts, be passed down through inheritance, but right. could, that made profit for people. And one of the things you were talking about is that there have been both liberal and conservative justifications for this, right? There's yep. been the, we should assimilate people to white culture and we can do that through taking their children, which, you know, is, a, is the sort of thing you can only imagine about a group of people who are racialized or who are um, impoverished in such a way that they, you hold them differently in your mind, right? Right. right I would right. never say to you, you would never say to me as like people who respect each other, oh, I'm going to take your kid because like that's going to give your kid a better opportunity. Right. Um, right. 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 In the in, in the absence of one of us abusing our children or something like that, if it's just looking at you and saying, oh, I don't think that the way you're living is up to my standard. So I'm just going to take your kid from you because they'll live a much right. better life with me. Right. Yeah. 
Right. Even if it's the, I don't have indoor plumbing or I'm just barely getting by, like, right. no, it's not a solution to poverty in the way that, say, programs that enable people to have decent housing and food are um, to take their children. And and then there's the the other rationale, which is just terror. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it so it is it is the dual the dual purpose of uh propagandizing these communities as basically being unfit to take care of themselves that's why we have to do this to them but also with the wink wink to that community of no we know what we're doing to you is terrible and if you want it to end get away from us you know get get out of our get out of our land and go somewhere else because we're just going to make it worse um so this let the the indian residential schools uh we could probably do an entire conversation just about this. I, I, uh, last year when I was campaigning for vice president, um, I went across the country, including, uh, into a lot of communities in the Southwest, which were very heavy with natives. And there were some there who, I don't know if I met anyone who actually was in, uh, one of these residential schools. Uh, but I did meet people who talked about how their parents and grandparents were in these residential schools. Are are you able to tell us just sort of a, 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 I guess, a, a, a brief synopsis of what it was like being a, I guess, kind of going through the timeline of being a child who is, you know, removed from their family and put in one of these schools and what that actually looked like to them, like sort of a, I guess, sort of a, a, a compressed, a condensed timeline of what that would look like as a sure. child going through that? Yeah, we have some particularly horrifying accounts from the 1920s and 30s um, that tell stories of rampant epidemic disease in residential schools. Like living in the time of COVID, it's actually much easier to understand right. how um, disease just ripped through these um, these boarding schools, these barracks um, of children being dramatically punished for um for things like running away um, or failing or speaking an indigenous language, their hair was cut um, so that they looked like little Victorian ladies and gentlemen or boys and girls. They were um, segregated by sex, which was rarely a practice um, in indigenous communities. And so separated from brothers and sisters and neighbors. Um, and that they were frequently illiterate, which tells us something about what is boarding school, right? We think. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the point of the boarding school if they're not? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. That it wasn't educational, um, and they were they were working um, probably in violation of child labor laws in order to support yeah. the institutions. Um, some of them were state-run institutions, and some of them were religious institutions run by Protestants, Catholics, and, um, and Mormons as well. And then um, in the 1930s, we have accounts from the Navajo Reservation in um, northern Arizona of children literally being roped like cattle and packed into trucks. We know that um, sometimes families hid their kids Something happened, though, in the, um, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, which is that boarding schools got a lot more Native teachers. And that changed their character in significant ways. Mm. And 
you know, there are kind of two stories that historians tell, and one of them about the boarding schools, and one of them is the story of terror and the desire to separate them from indigenous communities. And then there's the story of survival, right? The American Indian movement was born in boarding schools and Mm. native teachers helped people figure out how to be men, women, adults through and indigenous adults and inter inter intertribal conversations took place that forged Indian identities or native identities that were different from just the identities of tribal nations. Um, so I think that the boarding school experience in some ways was really mixed as it became for some people a strategy for learning and going on with their lives. But we also have reports from psychologists talking about high rates of alcoholism, anxiety, um, mental illness in the wake of the boarding school experience, that it's higher than average, that people suffered in boarding schools. There was also, um, there are also reports of rampant sexual abuse in boarding schools. I so go ahead. No, 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 no. I want you to, I, I want to let you finish on this point. So because native survival ran through the boarding schools and native survival is also the story of the United States, we don't want to just remember them for their horrors, but also for the ways that people made something else of them. Well, they had to out of necessity in order to be able to survive they coped as they could and so there is that not a silver lining but there is that story of the survival that happened out of that but at the same time obviously we don't want to glorify that or 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 lionize that when the reality is they were surviving an incredibly horrific and traumatic thing and and you know one of the things that struck me is we talk about the fact that people who are abused are often exponentially more likely to end up being abusers because that's that's what they know. And obviously, by the time, once they're adults, they have to be responsible for that. But we know the, the data. The data shows us that when someone is abused, they are more likely, I, I maybe shouldn't say exponentially, but much more likely to commit abuse. When you see widespread systemic abuse of an entire, of multiple generations of children, obviously that's going to end up working its way towards those children becoming adults and often now dealing with the, the, the secondhand trauma of that event or, or causing secondhand trauma from that event in the course of abusing people and things like that, especially if they also are dealing with the fact of having no real prospects. Um, you know, we talk about uh, people like Leonard Peltier and uh, and Russell Means with the American Indian Movement, uh, who were fighting not just against uh, the this attempt at erasing Native culture, but often were also fighting against the so-called tribal governments, which are really just puppet regimes of the of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the federal government. But you know, I, so I guess you know my 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 question to you on this is. Uh, We've talked a lot about the the fact that this there's obviously a racial bend towards this, but this isn't something, even though it has overwhelmingly and often exclusively been used against marginalized and minority communities, the fact is 
white people or particularly uh, unwed white mothers were, were not spared either. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the uh, and I forget the term, but the, the, the basically the homes for unwed women, which were largely, uh, you know, ba- mostly targeted towards white women, or at least in certain certain states and communities. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Unwed mothers' homes is the term you're Unwed looking mother. for. Yes. And, um, or sometimes they were called Florence Crittenden homes. Um, and the, um, so especially impoverished white women have also been targeted by the foster care system and the state system that separates the, separates children from their from their parents and severs parental rights. But the um, unwed mother's homes were a little different in the sense that in the middle of the 20th century, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the the effort to sort of um, rescue white girls and rescue their reputations, make it so that they can return, uh, that they can have a pregnancy and get, go away somewhere so that their friends and family don't know about the pregnancy and return and still be marriageable um, was, was the goal of the unwed mother's homes. And the children would be placed in adoptions. One of the things that that is painful about that history is the extent of compulsion that social workers exercised to get those young women to relinquish their children, and sometimes that their mothers and fathers did as well. These days, um, the middle-class white girls who have that experience are largely the products of conservative Christian households. They still very much exist, um, and but... The interesting thing or the um, the poignant thing is that by the middle and late 1970s, as it became marginally possible for a single white woman to support their children, um, they stopped relinquishing them in very big numbers for adoption. And many people attribute that shift mistakenly, I think, to the rise in abortion. It was, it happened before abortion became legal throughout the country that the rates of placing kids in adoption, um, white babies dropped dramatically. Girls of color were largely unwelcome in unwed mother's homes because the unwed mother's homes sort of depended for their economics on placing, on the the adoption fees for placing those babies. So they were baby mills. um, In many ways. Yes. And they didn't think that they could get um, that they could get the same fees for children of color. And so sometimes you see like the national urban league trying to create spaces so that respectable black girls can place babies in adoption um, without having to suffer the um, the consequences of what in the middle of the century people would have said, you know, a tragic mistake, a one-time mistake. Right. This is so, and, and what's, what's 
incredible about this, Laura, is that this is all based on maintaining a lie. The whole concept of purity culture, for lack of a better word, is supposed to be, you know, well, we want to keep our, mostly our women, but basically our, our young ones, tar- targeted mostly towards women, because it's obviously their fault. Uh, but, you know, it, we want to keep our, our women, our girls, pure, so that they can, you know, save themselves for the man that they were intended for, basically. Uh, or if you want to look at it more in a more egalitarian way, that our children are kept pure for their eventual spouse, that they'll be able to enter into holy matrimony, having not you know sinned against god or 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 whatever or fornicated or whatever and yet when someone violates this when someone you know has a a child out of wedlock their answer was to erase it and, and to basically pretend it didn't happen by putting the girl in a home and basically like you said coercing her and her and her family to uh uh to 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 give up the child um for adoption and then it turned into a racket so now they're doing it. Now they're 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 making money from it. I'm sure they they convinced themselves that this was you know well we're just you know keeping these girls respect, but they're not. They're not keeping them respectable. They're pr- propagating a lie of 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 purity while simultaneously creating a baby racket. How how long approximately did this go on? You said that it it kind of fell apart in the in the 50s and 60s. How was this like a like a 20 year thing? Like how how many generations were affected by this? Well, you can still find places like that all over the South in particular. Um, And the unwed mother's homes now are a little different in that they might have more, um, more married women, more older women. But the other thing is, as you were, you were sort of struggling for non-gendered language and I would actually very much use gendered language to talk about Yeah, what for was this one, yeah, you ha- kind of have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what they were really trying to do was create families with fathers, right? If that's why, you know, that's why all this stuff about if she just gets married, it's okay, even if she's 14. Um, and so the whole thing about a shotgun wedding is, of course, the outcome of an illicit pregnancy. But if we think about sort of the middle of the 20th century is a period when illegitimate children, so-called illegitimate children, had all sorts of legal disabilities. Um, This was also part of what was at stake in the South in the 50s and 60s and calling um, black babies or black children illegitimate is that they could be... um, they could be banned from schools. They um, and obviously they could be banned from government programs, and that was the point. Um, so we see large numbers of girls in unwed mothers' homes through the 1970s, but there are girls and women in unwed mothers' homes or um, at, today. Right now, 
So this is, it may not have the same level of, of prominence that it once had, but this is still a thing that's very much going on. And still for the same reasons, this idea of maintaining purity within those circles that still are putting such a, a premium on, on such a thing. I, again, by being total lying hypocrites about the whole thing, we're going to maintain purity by lying about the fact that this poor girl has already dared to have sex outside of wedlock and, 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 and dared to end up, or, probably didn't know any better, end up getting pregnant as a result of it, we're just going to hide the whole thing. You know, we could probably go into a whole other thing about how this reflects on, you know, the pro-life movement. I think wherever you fall... I know, on the I'm de- thinking that exactly I, I, as you're saying, Ms. Or that we I, I, can talk about 1996 and the welfare reform debate. Oh, there's oh, there's many different places we go. I think wherever you fall on the uh, on the abortion debate, I think we can all agree that no one can truly call themselves pro-life in any manner of the word while simultaneously supporting or not at least having an equal amount of outrage towards the idea of 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 compulsively and coercively separating uh, mothers from their children and putting them in foster care where they are likely to suffer abuse and all sorts of, sorts of other terrible things in that in that very often corrupt corrupted system uh, in order to preserve a lie about purity. It, it is just it is just mind boggling to me. You know, when I when I when I say that these subjects are fascinating, it's in the most horrific way possible that it's it's if you were reading it as a fictional tale, you would say, wow, that's amazing that someone would come up with this. But these, these actual people have been and are being horrifically harmed by these things. And it, it is terrible. Now, Laura, another thing that I encountered a lot um, because, you know, what we're talking about is the tale of what often happens with centralized power systems, which is that they use their most cruel techniques and their their worst harms often against those who are the least able to protect themselves against it because predators tend to go after the easiest prey. So the poor, communities of color, gender and sexual minorities, religious and ethnic minorities, immigrants, indigenous people, all, all of the groups that we would expect to be the ones that are the most disproportionately harmed by these things often are. And to that end, when I was going around the country, I often spoke with uh, parents, particularly uh, mothers, but often uh, uh, actual uh, two-parent households as well, uh, usually be- you know below the poverty line, uh, who would come to my event um, because they wanted to talk about uh, abuse by CPS, Children's Protective Services, or DSS, Department of Social Services, the different names in different states. But they would tell me these, I want to say unbelievable stories, except I heard them so often that I can't use the word unbelievable to describe them. Stories of CPS workers just making up things. Uh, stories of CPS workers, uh, uh, you know, uh, making uh, threats, illegal threats, uh, and 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 going across state lines. There was one person I spoke with where CPS workers actually illegally went across state lines. Uh, took her children, went back across the state lines with her children, and the last I heard, she's still fighting that uh, in court. And they crossed multiple state lines to seize her children, even though she was no longer a resident of the state where where that CPS agency was. And yet, all the same, she has been for several months fighting that. Uh, I'm not sure how much your, your, your book touched on this particular thing, but this is an example of institutionalized child kidnapping every bit as much as the things we've talked about do you do you know is there anything you can expound upon that and 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 where we stand with that right now yeah absolutely there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who thinks they're rescuing a child right um 
Yeah. The ways that state actors, social workers um, get involved in really terrifyingly coercive activities because they think they're rescuing a child. Um, but I want to I want to also say something a little different, which is there are at least two traditions in the United States that have uh, operated around these questions. And one is the one we've been talking about, the taking of children. But there have also been generation after generation activists who have fought back against it. Mm-hmm. And two things leave me much more optimistic than I was even when I wrote the book um, a year ago. And that is one is the mobilization last summer by Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, which in their um, in their new vision statement, the 2020 vision statement, has really articulated a critique of the foster care system as central to the politics of state coercion and racialized state coercion. Mm. Um, organizations like the Movement for Family Power in Brooklyn have um, taken national leadership around these questions. And the other thing that has changed is that immigration activists, I think, can take a lot of credit for the election of Joe Biden. And the Biden administration seems to have not yet forgotten that. I hope. I hope not. I I mean, there's the... I've been reading the executive orders as they've come out from the Biden administration, the the deportation ban, um, the ban on taking children, and the uneasy relationship between the Biden administration and the and its own agency, its own um, yep. ICE. ICE, um, yep, yep. ICE has continued to deport children and babies since the Biden executive order was issued um, now 10 days ago. And day before yesterday, they um, ICE sent out a deport, deportation flight um, to Haiti, where mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, one of the craziest places you could send children and infants to right now in the midst of a lot of political violence. Right. But the um, but the election of the Biden administration has provided new avenues for immigration activists to demand a different kind of accountability, not just around the taking of children and babies, but around immigration in general. I mean, one of the things that we can remember from the slavery period is that anti-slavery activists, abolitionists, focused on the taking of children from mothers as a way to describe the horrors of slavery in general. Mm. And I think we can, in a parallel way, we can look to the taking of children from asylum seekers as a leading issue that has brought a lot of attention to what's happening to immigrants in general. Because, of course, the Trump administration was not the first to take the children of immigrants. It was the George W. Bush administration separated them and put them in detention. Even the Reagan administration, although a much smaller number. And so there's been 
there's been a lot of pushback now um, against not only the the deliberate separating of families, but the the kinds of activities for which separating families is an inevitable byproduct, like deportations, even of adults, right? Um, or the ways that the migration system lets in a very small number of workers in particular, leaving right. families behind in home countries, or the use of immigration detention for people who've done nothing wrong, right? Or who have had their activities criminalized in um, by saying that simply crossing the border is a crime um, when it wasn't 50 years ago. Right. Uh, well, it, so, not, not, not only was it not a crime, but even now they were uh, there was this sort of uh, a, a odd legal gray area of because there seemed to be some uh, disagreement between different orders and laws as to whether t you could seek asylum in any area, even if you were technically illegally crossing. Um, and hopefully, you know, one thing that I'm I'm hopeful on, and, and yes, we are talking about the vice president under deporter in chief Barack Obama, who still has the right. record for number of deportations during. His, right. his time in office. But I do hope that as a result of the repulsion of seeing what happened during the Trump administration, that if it, that either uh, Joe Biden does deliver on promises to reform immigration, or if he does not, that uh, that simply not being uh, Donald Trump isn't enough. And that, you know, that the activists who helped him get into office will hold him accountable. I, I've been asked a lot uh, by, you know, by by mine and, and Joe Jorgensen supporters, you know, is there any silver lining to Trump to, to Biden winning the election? And, and I say, you know, there's most things that that Biden is proposing. I am diametrically opposed to one of the few things uh, that I am ho very hopeful that he'll actually follow through on is what we're talking about with immigration. I, I, I share that hope with you as well. Well, I think the question about elections is not so much is how do you choose the enemy you want, right? And as between the Trump administration, which were where you could win and still lose. So, for example, the question of whether you could, as you were just raising it, whether you could seek, uh, whether you could cross the border to seek asylum. And, you know, immediately turn yourself into a border patrol agent and say, I have a fear of um, persecution or death in my home country. And so do everything right under the international asylum system the, right, and U.S. Right. laws, apparently, and still be criminalized. That was the Trump administration. Yeah, and then you yeah. and then immigration lawyers went to court and said, this is ridiculous. This can't this isn't the law that you can't do this. And they would lose and they would continue to do it. Right. The right, court said right, right. that's So with the Biden administration, you have a separation between people who might have been neighbors, um, some of whom are um, characterized as illegal immigrants and some who are characterized as asylum seekers. And right. now asylum seekers can cross and ask for an asylum hearing. But um, immigrants who cross are at serious risk of being criminalized. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I am. I am. I'm not sure I'd say I'm optimistic. I am hopeful. Uh, it does bother me seeing the, the already seeing the change in some media 
uh, agencies when they report on on things that you know the the surge of the, of of uh, of of, uh, of uh, expected unaccompanied minors and families that are come or unaccompanied minors, meaning people that are coming with a, a guardian other than their their parents, um, who are who are coming to the borders, and suddenly the camps and cages are being referred to as overflow facilities. I, I'm I'm hopeful that there will be that this is not going to just be you know putting a uh, you know putting a, a a happy face on strikingly similar policies. I, I hope there is a a real change when it comes to this. I also hope that we eventually address the fact that, and again, we could do a whole other show about this, the fact that so many of these people are coming to flee political instability that is happening as a result of the war on drugs and other uh, 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 infringements and intrusions on the political processes of other countries by the U.S. government. But that, again, whole other subject. Uh, But I do do hope that there will be some, some light shine there. But, you know, before, you know, kind of wrapping this up, uh, what are some solutions? I mean, I, I think one obvious solution, it's not a fix-all, but one obvious solution is we need to end immunity for bad actors in government. We talk about ending qualified immunity for police officers, but we also need to be ending, I believe, absolute immunity for judges, for prosecutors, for CPS workers, for agents in agencies that are refusing to uh, to comply with just the basic constitutional recognition of people's rights. It, it's not a fix-all, but I think it, it does help. What are some other solutions that you see to make sure that this ends and that and that it never it either never happens again or is much more difficult for something like this to happen again so that children aren't continuously being separated as a matter of policy from their from their families we need to stop pouring money into um, the foster care system every time the foster care system super screws up and something awful happens a child dies the instant response is we need to put more money into the system, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and we also need those children who are surging, the unaccompanied minors, they have parents and relatives in the United States. Yes. Um, that's yep. why they're here. And we need to recognize that U.S. policy since at least Clinton of militarizing the border has done more to separate families than any policy of um, of trying to terrorize asylum seekers. We need to talk about democratic solutions that give due process and power and rights to immigrants who are being who have been recruited for generations to do the work of the United States to do the work of picking crops, of building um, of building houses, doing construction work, and recognize that they too are entitled to have families. And we've got to stop imagining that we can build an immigration system that can recruit labor, but not bring families bring with their it. families, right. And we need to stop immigration detention that is essentially about criminalizing people who did nothing substantial wrong. We have the U.S. Senate has and the Congress has criminalized everyday behavior on purpose as a yeah. way of terrorizing immigrants. So if you um, so working when working while undocumented 
giving a false name to a police officer have been turned into felonies only for immigrants. We need a separate, we don't need a separate legal system for immigrants. We need to treat people as, we need to stop using citizenship to separate people. That's exactly what was done um, during the period of slavery. And to many people who, even those who opposed slavery, what did they see as the end end point after slavery? They were gonna deport all the African and African descended people yep. who were working yep. here. And we've simply recreated versions of those laws in that system in relation, in respect to immigration. We need to respect tribal sovereignty and tribal efforts to build um, build child welfare systems and fund them, fund, um, make the things that treaties demanded available, decent housing, decent food, um, opportunities to provide social services through through the structures of tribal nations. Yeah, I, you know, interestingly enough, this is pretty much every single thing you stated was in what Joe and I, at least on these subjects, what Joe and I just ran on last year that, you know, we need to not just hold bad agents, bad actors in government accountable. We recommended either fully opening the borders, returning to the original U.S. immigration policy, which was that it wasn't the government's business who came or left from the country unless they were coming for militant purposes, uh, or at the very least returning to something like the Ellis Island policy, where you basically just gave your name, your country of origin and that kind of stuff, rather than treating people as presumed criminals, treating them as presumed additions, welcome additions to the American uh, tapestry, even if that wasn't necessarily what the intention of the policy was, using that as, as an idea. And like you said, respecting people, being able to have families. Uh, you know, when it comes to the subject of you were mentioning uh, tribal sovereignty, I spoke, spoke to so many people when I when I was spoke to natives, because I, I, I will admit I wasn't as well versed on that subject as I as I am now having spoken to them. And, and I would say, you know, what is it that you would like to see from the federal government? And they would say, you know what, we don't even care about, you know, the programs we were promised. Just let us use our land as we wish without having the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs spend years before they even respond to a request to be able to build a yeah. new addition to our farm or, or add livestock to our, to our, our you know, or, or, or sublet our properties or, you know, or, or something like that. But if we do it without permission, having someone come and destroy it within a matter of days, you know, just let us use our own land and, and respect the, the sovereignty that we were promised. So anyway, I, I, you know, this is like I said, we could we could spend hours talking about this, but I, I I agree with you. I think that that you know, to whatever extent you know, government can claim the right to even exist in the first place. It needs to be existing to protect the lives and rights and 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 well being of the people under it and the property of the people under it. Not trying to weaponize uh, any kind of policy, much less a policy built around really bad notions about racial or ethnic superiority and things like that. So, uh, Laura, you have been a, a fantastic guest. Before I let you go, I just want to give you a chance uh, to say anything that you feel like you didn't get a chance to say. Uh, if you have any kind of upcoming uh, speaking events or books or anything you want to plug, this is your time to do so. Your website, anything else that you want to pr promote, you have as much time to do so. Uh, Professor Laura Briggs, the floor is yours. One of the things that I'm really excited about is an upcoming symposium um, in March called Strengthening Bonds. And it'll be a kind of wonky event, lots of lawyers, but also lots of activists talking about how to, 
how to build something other than the child welfare system and how to build a system that supports families in really different ways, not terminating people's parental rights. And that'll be March 17th, I believe, in at Columbia University. So people should look for that. Okay, so March 17th in Columbia University, and it was called, what again, Strength, what was it called? Strengthening Bonds. Strengthening Bonds. Do you know of a website or anything for that? Or if someone just looks for Strengthening Bonds, they should be able to find it? should be able to find it, but I can... Um, we'll we'll get, we'll get that you. for the notes. Yeah, yeah, we'll, get the, we'll put that in the show notes. So Strengthening Bonds, uh, March 17th at Columbia University. Well, uh, again, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. This was, I hate to use the word fascinating to describe something that is so horrific and destructive, but this is an incredible subject. I think if Americans knew uh, more about this, if people knew more about what was happening... Uh, that I, th- I think they'd be even more outraged at, at the things that are happening. And I, I do hope, if nothing else comes positive out of this administration, that there's at least some change when it comes to immigration. And, and I would love to see a, a greater respect for the, uh, the, 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 the lives and rights of the individual, and especially as it relates to the integrity of the family. So, Laura, thank you again so much for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. It was terrific. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us for this uh, episode of My Fellow Americans. I told you that this would be both heartbreaking and fascinating. Um, There are certainly many things that we can do to hold our elected officials accountable uh, to try to solve this problem so that we don't continue separating families. And uh, this was a a very um, enlightening discussion on how we can work towards that together. Uh, So be sure to join us uh, next week. Uh, next Monday for another episode of Spike Cohen's Culture of Winning, uh, where I speak, where I interview uh, elected libertarians to talk about how they got elected so we can build a blueprint for getting libertarians elected across the country. My guest this uh, this coming week is Chris Powell. He is the newly re-elected Bethany, Oklahoma City Council member. Uh, and he is, uh, not only did he get re-elected, he crushed it. He got like 74% of the vote. So he absolutely monkey stomped that election. That's a new electoral term that I'm going to use from now on. Monkey stomp. He was a, a libertarian. He didn't just win. He's a libertarian monkey stomper. And we're going to talk about how he did that monkey stomping and build a blueprint for monkey stomping uh, by libertarians across this country. I'm going to stop saying monkey stomping now. Mon- monkey stomping. Uh, and then join us next uh, Tuesday at 8 p.m., for another episode of The Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the cheery little 2020 Wonder Boys that we are. And then join us right back here next Wednesday, same spike place, same spike time, 8 p.m. Eastern, for another amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. Folks, thanks again for watching. I will see you soon. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.
world to another's islands. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid, at the least slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time with the blind the blind. Who am I to deny with cry when a loved one dies? I recognize that body outside with the holes in the body that was alive. Now we find a chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. Hold these kids, I close my eyes. 